Welcome to Not Yet a Doctor. This is another installment of our series This Week in Science. So we're going to be discussing actually another article that was published in the magazine Science today. But this article is not a scientific article per se, but something else that was really uh, interesting and came across my Twitter news feed this week. Ooh. So, I don't know if you guys know what DNA barcoding is. I recently learned. How <laughs> you want to tell us what it is? I can do my best. It's where you can take DNA from a sample. Typically, it's a ecological sample, biological sample, and you can effectively sequence a particular gene to try and tell the differences between different species. Yeah. So you can take that, add barcodes with like consensus sequences between species, but what's inside is different and varies. And so when you actually read what's in between, you get a barcode or a signature for different species. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And so this article <laughs> was published in Science Magazine, and it's called Failing the Test, DNA Barcoding, and the subtitle, DNA Barcoding Brought Botanist Stephen Newmaster Scientific Fame and Entrepreneurial Success. Was it all based on fraud? And so this was published Ooh. February 2nd, 2022 by Charles Pillar, although there was a similar article published, I think, uh, last year sometime that was sort of a bigger, also a very similar reveal of some questionable scientific practices, questionable scientific data, and concerning ethical behavior in science, I guess, <laughs> from this guy who I'd never heard of before this article, no, Stephen Newmaster. And so back in 2013, he led a team that uh, essentially used DNA barcoding to look at herbal supplements and see if the plant species that were claimed to be in the herbal supplements were actually present. And this was a big upset in the field and in the industry of plant supplements, I guess, because his paper claimed that predominantly there was a lot of I guess there was not a lot of the plant species that are on the labels actually being in the supplements and there was a lot of contaminants and a lot of other inert fillers they say and just um, different plants than what's on the label and you think okay that's great like somebody is holding an industry that has almost no accountability accountable because you know first dietary supplements especially in the US this is something that can almost be often not very, there's not a lot of oversight in the industry. But <laughs> more recently, an undergraduate student in his lab from way back when realized during his grad studies that the work he did in the lab with Stephen Newmaster was sort of suspicious. And like the data that he was working on, he never actually saw the raw data. He was only ever given like sort of summary data to analyze and publish. And so there was an investigation mm -hmm. into Newmaster's overall scientific work and what was found was just an alarming amount of suspicious data practices and straight up fraud <laughs> if you consider fraud wow. being presenting graphs that do not at all have the data that you say they have on them and i know so om has also read the paper i don't know if you have any thoughts here that you want to throw in om 
I mean, I think you've nailed it in general. Um, this guy, the way I kind of describe it is he started off with a significant lie and just kept telling a couple more and more white lies or things that he felt he could get away with. And it all added up to fraud mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of it all. And to be fair, like, so we don't get <laughs> any sort of cease and desist on our um, mm-hmm. how we're speaking about him. This is allegations still technically yeah. he claims he has done nothing wrong but i think some of the some of the best and like nice introductory evidence into the suspicious data practices are some of the slides they pulled from slide decks of presentations he gave and particularly this one where so essentially he's built since the 2013 paper slash slightly before the 2013 paper he built an company based off of barcoding DNA samples for different to identify different plant species and different genetic samples in supplements and in other, you know, just to sort of test differences between food products and supplement products and to build money out of this. And so one of the things that he is doing, I guess, or was doing in all of this research in a more recent slide presentation is he showed or he claimed to show nuclear NMR, I guess, nuclear magnetic resonance profiles for three different cannabis strains mm-hmm. that he was analyzing. And he said you, um, it showed that, like, you could cluster these strains based on their nuclear magnetic resonance profiles. And he puts a little principal components graph, which shows you, like, dots for each strain all over the graph, and they cluster nicely and separate. But if you just look into this, this is straight up, a graph from the R website that he has like it is identical to a graph published on the R website that shows um, arrest data for fifty U.S. states. Really? Yeah. So it's ident- it's ident- the identical graph, and maybe cannabis these three strains nuclear magnetic resonance profiles exactly resemble arrest data for fifty U.S. states. Uh, but Amish shaking his head. I would argue that's not the case. <laughs> it, when the, I've never seen two principal component plots yeah, that look alike. But line up in such a beautiful way. And are derived mm-hmm. from what looks like the same initial raw data values. So it's kind of yeah. suspect. So he was just pulling mm-hmm. uh, figures and stuff for his presentations from other sources? Yeah. And often not yeah. giving credit to those sources. Not appropriate credit. Or claiming that they were his own yeah. <laughs> pieces of data. And like right. that's that's just on like one component of his career, right? We're just talking about presentations here. But there seems to be a whole financial yeah. incentive uh, that kind of backs all of mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. As there often is. <laughs> financial incentive. There's also like he... There's quite evident plagiarism in his 2011... Like in a 2011 paper that mm. he published. Where he just plagiarizes pretty much whole paragraphs of a paper published in 2005 and 2007 that's about millet strains yeah um do you want to talk about the financial incentive i feel like you have a good background (laughs) i'll put it uh i'll put it as simply as i can i guess the seminal study that you know where he really talks about the the use of dna barcoding as like almost a quality assurance mechanism and so what they do i believe this is a 2013 paper where they take um, different herbal uh, products. So like these are like, these are things, words I don't 
could never say ginkgo bil- biloba st john's wart wart yeah. these are not things i'm aware of but i'm sure are a big deal in other realms um but in all cases they use the dna barcoding method to try and effectively say what's inside of this product like, what are you actually getting and on its face you know that sounds like perfect you know this dna barcoding has been shown to work in tissue samples and you know why not just translate it to some a product you know like a we could do it for shampoo if we wanted. We could do it for whatever. And like that's the principle or the idea that I think they're trying to get at. But the issue comes here where DNA barcoding isn't great for processed molecules. I'll put, I'll put it that way, processed products, <laughs> right? You lose the DNA. And I don't know how you can really say much about what's actually in a product based on DNA barcoding after it's been processed. And so that is exactly the essential allegation at the core of all this. And so the financial incentive comes here. He generated, he was working on creating a company that effectively acted as a quality assurance mechanism for other brands and that they would have to pass his barcoding quality assurance mechanism in order to be able to actually go out and uh, uh, be certified under their company. And so this certification became kind of like a new standard. And so he generated his new company, which if I recall correctly, bi- yeah, Biological ID Technologies, right? Is that, yes. Mm-hmm. New Master and uh, University of Guelph geneticist Robert Hanner created this. And this is this was, they were generating this company a year before they published the data about wow. the herbal products. So again, there's like an mm-hmm. incentive there. And in that 2013 paper, he claims no conflict of interest. When like, I don't know. For me, it feels like a pretty red, pretty big red flag, right? And so I think that's kind of the outline there of like the initial sin, I guess, or the biggest sin. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think if you incorporate a company that provides purity certifications for herbal supplements a year before you publish a paper about DNA barcoding for herbal supplements, I think you have to disclose that conflict of interest because it's obviously a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, that's like kind of like the central controversy of his work is this 2013 paper on DNA barcoding and herbal supplements being very like, I mean, the financial incentive is obvious, but also very likely being inaccurate. I mean, like, even in 2013, there was a paper that came out heavily criticizing that his paper right away. So it's, it's, but it was just fascinating because, you know, like, this is obviously the biggest feature of his career and presumably scientific malpractice or ethical malpractice but there's all sorts of other things that are starting to come to light about his research too so like I said one of his well there's there's so many there's so many things here I think that was like the most remarkable part of reading this story is I was just like wow this guy does everything so he claimed (laughs) to have been sequencing and studying COVID-19 and, like, sequencing the virus in summer and fall of 2019. Oh, before the virus even really existed. Very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Almost a year before the viral sequence was released publicly to the scientific community by a lot of hardworking scientists who worked on sequencing the virus and getting the sequence data out there. And I'm, it's also like, if you were doing that, sir, why did you not tell anyone? (laughs) Like, if you knew about this virus in the summer and fall of 2019, you probably should have said something. But obviously he didn't. Was he was he saying that he had been working on it in the summer and fall? Like, in 2020, he was claiming that he had been working on it in um, the summer and fall? 
Or was he saying... In, Effectively. Because yeah, he yeah. couldn't have predicted was... that SARS-CoV-2 no. would have existed in the summer and fall of 2019. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. In, a, in an October 2020 radio interview, oh, okay. Newmaster said he was working on SARS-CoV-2 tests and the request of the U.S. Center at the request of the CDC in the summer and fall of 2019. Huh. So this man just makes up bad lies. In the scientific community, yeah. we were already sequencing samples, blood samples, saliva samples, and looking at this virus, he told an incredulous host. Like, that's what this story says. So he literally says that he's sequencing the virus. But, like, we didn't have the viral sequence. <laughs> we didn't have but the virus. It's, it's just, like... Yeah, we didn't have the virus, it's just exactly. outrageous. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, I think it's great it's coming to light, but... How did this... Well, how do, you mentioned this a bit earlier, but how did this actually all come to a head? How did he actually start to be kind of investigated more harshly? So what the article tells us is that there was an undergraduate student who did his undergraduate thesis in the lab who kind of brought this scrutiny onto Stephen Newmaster. So like I mentioned before, this undergraduate was doing research under Newmaster, but essentially was given data to work with and published this undergraduate project. And then later on, as a grad student, reflected on the experience and realized, you know, like, there's a lot of weird things about the data. And it doesn't, like, what he says is that he had never seen the raw data. It had never been uploaded to, like, these data, online data repositories where if you're doing sequencing data, almost all scientists do this. And it's way the best practice. You're supposed to upload your raw sequencing data to repositories after it is published so other people can analyze it, other people can do meta-analyses, use it in their pipelines and stuff, because it's really important that, like, people have open access to sequencing data, which contains, you know, after you publish it, you publish, like, a little story on your sequencing data, right? But there's usually so much information that can be found in sequencing data that you aren't going to be equipped or interested in looking at in every way, and also it's going to synergize with other people's sequencing data out there and other people are going to be able to bring new perspectives to it so it's like just best practice to upload sequencing data and everyone should do it but anyway so not only had the undergrad never seen the raw sequencing data but then it was never uploaded to any of these online data banks and so some of the species identifications that was like claimed in the paper that they perfectly identified certain plant species is virtually impossible for those plants you can't get perfect identification of certain plant species and that's what the paper claimed they did so the he says, like, his quote is, I wasn't 100% confident that it was fraudulent data, but I was 100% confident it was worth asking the question. Mm. And so he asked the University of Guelph, which is where this researcher is located, to investigate into this. And the University of Guelph initially just kind of squashed it, <laughs> didn't really want to investigate this That's really famous shocker. researcher who right. has a few companies around this topic and manage. he also, like, manages the whole like this whole dna sequencing project at the university of guelph they have like sort of a wing or division devoted to this type of thing that is managed by this guy so of course university of guelph was like no i'm sure it's fine but in response to his inquiry that like it be uploaded to the databank one of his collaborators uploaded data thousands of sequence records purportedly related to that initial paper that the undergraduate was on publishing and working on but <laughs> when it was somebody, so then the undergraduate went and analyzed the data that was uploaded, right? That was supposedly related to his paper that he had been working on when he was in the lab. Mm -hmm. 
This is all from like 2012. He found that 80% of the data precisely matched data collected for a different student's thesis. And they were looking at like forest ecosystem data and that was like, that student thesis was on a forest that was hundreds of kilometers away from where his forest data was supposed to be taken from. And there was an 80% match. And that, although, you know, like, if you ask Newmaster, the head of this project, he says that can be attributed to forest similarity. But if you ask probably anyone else, both <laughs> in sequencing and in forest ecology, that stri- like that's not possible like, for a forest a hundred kilometers away to eighty percent match, and not just like, not just sort of like IDs and general like final level identification steps, but like specific sequencing errors matching mm. between the two data sets. That's like. I don't know the numbers, but identical twins don't even have that level of similarity in their gene. Or am I wrong? What they say, there's a great quote. So so Science Magazine asked a a researcher from the New York Botanical Garden to kind of comment on it, and especially like the DNA, the duplications between the DNA sequences and the similarities. And so this man is called Little. So I'm just reading from the article now. Little calls the large number of precisely replicated errors in DNA sequences bizarre and suggestive of data manipulation and then in quotes people will get hit by cars he says but will two of them be hit by cars while walking across the same intersection on their hands at 4 (laughs) a.m because like there's such particularities to sequencing data that you could look for that would never be expected to be the same between two different studies Mm -hmm. and i think that's what this is saying and he also adds that, like, the claim that 80% match could be just due to forest ecology is, un- quote, unbelievably wrong. That's <laughs> just an unbelievably wrong claim. So there you go. Wow. That's how it kind of came to a head. And so because this is This Week in Science and we're working yeah. in the current day, what's what's currently happening with this? It's kind of unclear. So, like, the University of Guelph... They interviewed like a spokesperson from the University of Guelph, and they say that the investigation uses using a fair and standard process, and the university will take appropriate action based on the results. But, you know, it's kind of, sh- it's shocking and concerning, and like, I think something maybe, I mean, if you're a pu- person in the public, I wouldn't worry too much about this, but as scientists, we should worry about this, is that the accountability for bad science is quite low in some cases, and especially if it's a high-profile scientist. So the journal that had initially published the forest paper from that undergraduate student's project did retract the paper in the end. So that has been retracted, but a lot of the other work and like papers that this new master has worked on are still out there, still considered to be good quality, good data, even though like a lot of them don't have data online as well. But so supposedly the University of Guelph is looking into him and that's an ongoing investigation. But how good of a job is an internal body going to be doing investigating their own employee who brings them thousands of dollars, thousands, probably millions of dollars of research funding, right? And mm-hmm. whatever collaborations he has with other industries. Yeah. Who's to say? Yeah. <laughs> They're kind of almost taking a hands-off-ish approach, I would like to say. You know, taking a step back, but looking from it from afar. And the last sentence of the article also says, you know, we need a third party. Yeah. 
uh, investigation group to actually be able to kind of root out this problem. But I, I don't know. The scientific community is pretty good at calling this stuff out mm-hmm. uh, in general. And like, I wouldn't even say that we need to tomorrow retract all of this stuff, no. but it needs to be investigated mm-hmm. and it needs to be looked into. And that's the accountability that we should, that should be automatic, I, I think at least, uh, the moment that suspicion is raised and that we should also be like amenable to it right mm-hmm. away. The moment that someone says, you know, that work looks suspect, well, here's the here's the backup for it, yeah. right? Most papers now, you know, require source data. Mm-hmm. How great that is, that's it's one it's one mechanism to address a lot of these issues systemically as well. But it would be nice if we had more quality assurance as we go up or more backup. Mm-hmm. Like academia does its best, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. But these things kind of fall to the cracks, and I don't want it to seem like, oh, this is like standard. You no, know, it's definitely not, not at standard. All. This is. This is so, so far and few in between. And I think so. the fact also that, like, this case has, like, received this type of media attention, being a whole op-ed published in Science Magazine, which is one of the biggest science magazines and journals that you can find, I think that says a lot, like, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the University of Guelph to do an appropriate job on this and, you know, really look into and investigate the quality of this guy's data because the scientific community generally broadly i'd say 99 percent of us care deeply about ensuring there are no there isn't deliberate data falsification and misinterpretation right like that's something we all value that's why we're moving towards um you know open access publications and online repositories for data because even even besides deliberate data falsification we want our data to be checked by other people because we might have interpreted it wrong accidentally or we there might be some other insight that somebody else brings to an analysis protocol and things like that so i think the majority of the community feels that way and is working towards that but it's always interesting and you know fascinating to see the grifter side of science is what i would call this is he's like it looks like he's absolutely been a grifter mm. and you know the trail of money and of companies of him developing like we only scratched the surface of it in this, what we're talking yeah. about in this article, but he's also developed companies for like measuring whether or not your air quality is safe for COVID type things. And it's just like, it feels like a grift. And mm. if the data has also been a grift, that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Scientists can be grifters too. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about this yeah. on the podcast semi-regularly, but I think this is also a, a good example of well, I mean, we don't know. There hasn't been a, a resolution yet, but us talking about it and Science Magazine writing about it, it shows that we as scientists care about the process and care about mm-hmm. checking each other, like peer review and checking each other's work and asking those difficult questions. Because I think a lot of people often, especially a lot of people that are like science deniers or that don't believe in the science or whatever don't understand the rigorous process that these things go through and how it can still also be falsified. But when we get a whiff of something that seems a little suspect, people ask those questions. Yeah. Yeah. I think COVID was probably like the perfect time for that, especially in the online space Mm -hmm. where, you know, Twitter, people are home, people are online Twitter and have all the time (laughs) now suddenly to read and analyze and look at other people's data and some of the you know a lot of stuff was rooted out during that Mm -hmm. time and i think it will continue to be the case 
thanks to these uh, open spaces, basically yeah. open forum platforms. And I was thinking, like you know, back in ye old day of I don't know, <laughs> old older scientists, old science, you old science. Um, <laughs> They didn't have these open repositories for data or gene banks. or I mean, they didn't mm-hmm. even know what genes were, but <laughs> depending how far back you go in ye old times. But um, mm-hmm. so I wonder how many discoveries and papers and fundamental things of, you know, our knowledge of science mm-hmm. are built on maybe, maybe not complete fraud, but definitely there was maybe mm-hmm. more room for fraud to happen and fewer checks. Yeah, it's true. There was also nest like... I think there's probably less necessity for fraud because um, the way science is built and the way scientific experiments were done back then, you had to do mm. so much less mm-hmm. to be able to show a result mm-hmm. that I think like, even if it's not built on fraud, it's built on sort of generalized assumptions that are made from specific small data sets, mm. which we've been like, I think, especially in neuroscience and biology, there's so many examples of cases where we were like this is the case and it's one way based on this one seminal paper from the 19 sometime in the 1900s probably the 60s or 50s right and then somebody's like well actually there appears to be more nuance and then well actually we looked up more samples and there's more nuance well actually so -hmm. i think that's a lot of how science has developed since then but definitely there's like we gotta be critical of each other and our, our own work and we gotta watch out for Watch out for these scientists who are willing to take advantage of the system. My, um, I guess my motto in listening to scientists talk in particular, or people talk about science, is if they say anything with too much certainty, or that say they say any, like they can do anything to perfection with 100% accuracy, they can prove anything, I'm automatically suspicious. Mm. Like, if you're saying right. this is the case 100% of the time, and you guys have this technique that can do this thing, perfectly i don't believe you probably there's always room for error. or at least i know that you're hiding something mm. yeah completely agreed that's this week in science very all about the grift yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so just before we go i'm just gonna repeat the citation so that any of our listeners who are out there who want to read more about this very exciting development the science tea as i we can call it <laughs> want the whole scoop can read the paper so it was published the 2nd of february 2022 by charles pillar it's in science volume 375 issue 6580 but the title is failing the test dna barcoding brought botanist stephen newmaster scientific fame and entrepreneurial success was it all based on fraud dun, dun, dun. thank you for listening to us today i am your host sienna i'm alistair And I'm on. We'll catch you soon. Bye-bye.